Well, it's a great privilege to be able to come and uh, bring you uh, God's Word this morning and to meet the church and visit the church. One of my privileges with the FIEC is to be able to travel around the country and uh, visit churches and uh, find out what's happening on the ground. So um, I'm really pleased to be able to be with you um, this morning. We're uh, looking at the topic this morning of a church with a gospel uh, vision. Well, I don't think there's uh, any doubt, is there, that we are facing a massive gospel challenge in this country. Over the past 100 years or more, Christianity has declined, and I think it's increasingly obvious that we live in a secular and non-Christian society. No matter what people may put down on their census forms, they simply do not believe in and do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've uh, seen the uh, latest edition of Operation World, a great help to pray for the world and what's going on around the world, but it's so easy for us to read it as if we're only reading about the world and not to think about our own country. But it's very sobering to read what Operation World says about the UK from an external perspective. According to Operation World, it estimates that about 8.8% of the British population would in some way or other identify with evangelicalism. But it makes the observation that only a third of those ever attend church regularly. That pretty much means 2.9% who are actively uh, uh, evangelical and involved in church. Perhaps the more worrying statistic is that the growth rate of evangelicalism in the UK is 0%. And Operation World makes the point that evangelicalism is only remaining, remaining stable and static because of immigration from outside of Britain of those who are already evangelicals. Compare that to uh, other places around the world. In India, 2.2% of the population are evangelical, but the growth rate is 3.9% per annum. In China, 5.7% of the population are evangelical, but the growth rate is 2.9% per annum. In Nigeria, 30.8% of the population are evangelical, and the growth rate is 3.1% of the population. I think that just brings home to us the seriousness of the situation that we find ourselves in and the extent of the gospel challenge that we face. We need to wake up to the reality that our nation needs to be re-evangelised. In many areas of the UK, there are vast swathes of the population that are unreached for Christ. That a tiny proportion of evangelical Christians, uh, conservative evangelical Christianity is strongest in the southeast. It's strongest amongst students. It's strongest amongst the middle classes. It's incredibly weak in the north. The further north you go, the weaker the picture becomes. Evangelicalism seems to have been ineffective at reaching working class communities and at reaching ethnic communities. We face a massive gospel challenge. And the tragedy is that in that situation there are many churches that seem to have lost their gospel vision. There are some churches that have lost the gospel altogether. They've abandoned the uh, apostolic gospel of the Bible. They don't believe any longer in the resurrection. They don't believe any longer in the cross as an atonement for sin. They don't believe any longer that there is a judgment to come and that Christ is going to return. Their focus is exclusively on uh, sort of uh, social ministry here and now. Melanie Phillips, the uh, Daily Mail commentator, who's uh, herself Jewish, 
writes perceptively in her sort of uh, recent book, The World Turned Upside Down, that one of the reasons for the rapid decline of Christianity in the UK is because the Church of England basically abandoned the biblical faith. It lost confidence in the gospel collectively. And therefore its ministry, as she put it, became social work at home and liberation theology abroad. And the result was Christianity goes into significant decline. Sadly and tragically, there are signs that many uh, uh, churches that would claim themselves to be evangelical are also in danger of abandoning uh, the gospel. There was a a survey done by the uh, Evangelical Alliance of Christian festival goers uh, a couple of years ago, asking them about their beliefs. And the responses were worrying, in that they showed immense confusion over issues like the authority of the Bible over issues like sex outside of marriage, over issues like sort of homosexual relationships, over issues like eternal judgment and whether there's punishment to come. And the goers weren't even asked questions as to how they understand the cross and the resurrection. So even within the evangelical community, there is a danger of the gospel being abandoned. There are those churches that have kept faithful to the uh, biblical gospel, but in effect they've lost their gospel vision. They are churches that have lost confidence that people are going to come to Christ. They have instead decided to withdraw into themselves and become ghetto communities, guarding the gospel for themselves but not taking it out to anyone. They become discouraged and depressed they're sort of uh, uh, withdrawn and waiting for revival to come as if there's nothing that the church can do in these circumstances. So we face a massive challenge and there are many churches that have lost their gospel vision. And that's why I want to come for us to look at the church at Antioch this morning because the church in Antioch, it seems to me, is a church that has a gospel vision. This is, uh, I think, a church which in many ways is the unsung hero church of the New Testament. I guess when we think of the great churches of the New Testament, Antioch rarely comes to mind. Largely because there isn't a letter that's written to the church in Antioch. So we think about Corinth or Rome or Ephesus or Philippi. But we don't instantly think of this church in Antioch. And yet actually this is a church that had a huge impact for the gospel. And I think in the book of Acts is presented for us as an example of a model church. Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. This is Antioch in Syria. It had a population of about 250,000. And amongst that population there was a Jewish population of about 25,000 or so. And what we see in the book of Acts is that the, uh, the gospel work that begins in Jerusalem that spreads out to uh, Judea and Samaria, the centre of uh, action here in this chapter shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then from Antioch goes out to the very ends of the earth. In some ways, Antioch is a staging post between the Gospel beginning in Jerusalem and the end of the book of Acts where Paul is proclaiming the Gospel in the very centre of the empire in Rome itself. But this church has a crucial place uh, to play. It becomes the base for world mission. 
So this is a church that has a gospel vision. And I just want to suggest as we look at this church, there are four aspects of what it means to be a church with a gospel vision. Four things that we can learn from. Four, in a sense, visions that we need to have. And the first of those is this. This was a church that had a vision for reaching the lost. A vision for reaching the lost. That's really verses 19 to 21 of this passage. This was a church that told people the gospel. That told people the good news about the Lord Jesus. That's actually the key theme of verses 19 and 20. Is how these Christians told people about Jesus. So, uh, do you notice in verse 19, those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Then some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene go to Antioch. They began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. This is a church that told people uh, the good news about the Lord Jesus and the result was that large numbers of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, I think what's so striking here is that the, uh, the people who started this church, the people who told others about the Lord Jesus, did this despite the fact that they were the victims of persecution. Despite the fact that they were those who'd been forced to flee from Jerusalem. Do you notice that in verse 19, they were those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. These were people who had seen the consequences of gospel preaching and of telling other people about Jesus. They knew full well that telling people about Jesus got you into trouble. They'd seen the apostles in Jerusalem, they'd seen them flogged and imprisoned. They'd seen them banned from telling other people about Jesus. They'd seen Stephen lynched. And they'd been chased out of town. Now would you expect that people who had fled persecution in that way would go on doing the very same things that led to that persecution? Wouldn't they just sort of look for a quiet life? A kind of asylum and keep their heads down? Not at all. They arrived in a new place and what did they do? They started doing what they'd been doing before. They started telling people about Jesus. They just couldn't help it. And they told people about Jesus irrespective of their ethnic background. That's one of the key things about the church in Antioch. Here the gospel begins to cross a, a fundamental ethnic divide. Initially those who arrived started telling the message to Jews only. With 25,000 Jews in Antioch there was plenty of opportunity. But then some others began to speak also to Greeks. That means the Gentiles. And here we see the gospel crossing boundaries. Boundaries of race, boundaries of religious background, boundaries of culture, ultimately boundaries of class. <coughs> See, here they begin to start telling the gospel to everyone, irrespective of who they are. And the result of this is that uh, here in Antioch, the uh, church begins to be recognised as a new movement. Verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And I guess here it, 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 they're beginning to be recognised as not a Jewish sect, not a subgroup of Judaism, but something new. 
that is drawing together all sorts of people under the lordship and the rule of Jesus. So here is a church with a vision for reaching the lost. A vision for telling people about Jesus despite the persecution that comes with it. A vision for telling people about Jesus irrespective of their background. Because they know that they need to hear of him because he is the Saviour and the Lord who can alone rescue them. And I guess if we're to be a church, if you're to be a church with a gospel vision, then you need to have a vision for the lost. You need to have some sense of compulsion to tell them the good news about Jesus. That he is the Lord. And I guess if you're going to do that, if you're going to have the kind of gospel vision that the church in Antioch has, then then you have to have a deep confidence in the gospel. That this message about Jesus is a, a vitally urgent, important message. That it is God's power for salvation. Only if you have that confidence in the gospel will you think it's a message worth telling despite the cost of persecution. And you see, I think one of the problems in our country is we are held back by a fear of persecution. Not a fear of physical persecution and imprisonment, not yet, but a deep fear of how people will respond to us and how they will view us. A deep fear of being mocked. A deep fear of being shunned. A deep fear of not being regarded as being respectable. And for many of us, that holds us back from sharing the good news about Jesus with our friends, with our family, with our colleagues, with our course mates, uh, with the uh, mums at school that we know, with the people in our sort of sports teams that we play with. We know full well what they would think of us if we tell them that we think Jesus is the Lord and he alone can save them and there's an eternal judgment to come. We're inhibited by fear of that sort of persecution. It seems to me that we live in a country which, uh, in some senses, is non-physical in the way that it sort of deals with people. We don't uh, anymore hang and flog. We've banned corporate punishment in schools. We've restricted physical punishment at home. It's not surprising that in that kind of culture, the form persecution takes is psychological rather than physical. But it's just as real and effective in preventing us speaking about Christ to others. So we have to have confidence in the gospel, confidence to tell people about the Lord Jesus, even despite the consequences that flow from that. I think we need to have conviction that the gospel really is good news. It really is worth telling. These early disciples in the book of Acts were so filled with joy at who Christ was and what he'd accomplished. But they were delighted to tell people the news about Jesus. This wasn't a burdensome duty for them, but it was a delight because they believed that this message was the most important and wonderful message that could be shared. After all, the Gospel is good news of sins forgiven. It is good news that God's kingdom of perfect justice and perfect joy is going to be established. That God's promises have been kept. Do we have confidence that the gospel is good news that is worth telling? And are we willing to cross those boundaries? To tell this gospel to all kinds of people? 
I think one of the problems is sometimes we operate with a mentality that thinks there are certain kinds of people who are likely to respond to the gospel. Now, maybe the captain of the rugby team, he's pretty unlikely to respond to the gospel. But there are some other people who kind of, they sort of look like the type who might become religious. We're likely to be effective with them. So we kind of try to select who are the ones we think we're likely to be successful with. And then there are other people who we kind of think it's somehow not really quite right to be sharing the gospel with them. Those who are Muslim, those who are Hindu or from another religion. Is it sort of imperialist to be sharing the gospel with them? Is it somehow rude to be suggesting to them that they need to turn to Christ? Now the gospel crosses all boundaries. Because the gospel is good news for everybody. It's the good news that every single human being needs to hear. And we must be willing to preach the gospel across those boundaries. Irrespective of race, irrespective of religious background, irrespective of culture, irrespective of class. It's what the church in Antioch did. And that's what we need to do. And we need to trust God for the response. Our responsibility is to tell to tell the good news about Jesus, to pass on the message. But we're not responsible for the response. Our task is not to force people to become Christians, not to compel them to become Christians. We cannot do that. All we can do is tell them the good news of who Jesus is. There was a great response in Antioch, but do you notice that was down to the work of the Lord? Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It was God who was at work through the telling of the gospel and the result was that many people believed. But actually the book of Acts doesn't guarantee that wherever we tell the gospel there'll be that great response. There are places in the book of Acts where Paul preached the gospel and a small number believed. Think of uh, Acts chapter 17 where Paul was preaching in Athens. There were a small number who believed, others who were interested in hearing more, and a whole lot who laughed at the message he had to proclaim. It's not the case that whenever we tell the gospel there will be a great response. The response is down to the Lord. Actually, the response is not the indication of whether we've been faithful or unfaithful. We're called simply to tell the good news about Jesus. I think another mistake when we read the book of Acts as we read it is it it just seems to sort of uh, tell us of one great success after another after another. We kind of assume that our local church life should be like that. Whereas the reality is that the book of Acts telescopes a period of about 30 or 40 years into 28 chapters. It's kind of selected highlights. It's like, it's like watching the sort of a 40 year history and kind of going through it at kind of fast forward on the kind of DVD or whatever. You just glimpse bits. Actually, as we read the book of Acts, we must never underestimate the ongoing slog that took place all the time. It's, uh, it's like watching football highlights. You can kind of see all the great moments, but there's kind of all the play that builds up to it. That's <coughs> sort of uh, less exciting to watch. That is a vital part of kind of gospel uh, ministry. So here is a church with a vision for uh, telling, uh, vision for the lot, reaching the lost, and telling them the good news about Jesus. Well, secondly, 
This church had a vision for training disciples. A vision for training disciples. And that's verses 20 to 26. See, gospel ministry is not just about conversion and evangelism. Here the uh, uh, kind of leaders of the church taught people the gospel and equipped and trained them to become disciples who would live for the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Barnabas came to the church from uh, Jerusalem. He came to encourage the work. He rejoiced at the uh, grace of God that he saw and he uh, encouraged the believers who were there in uh, Antioch to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. They needed encouragement to keep going in the faith that they had uh, turned to. Barnabas then recruits Saul, who we uh, know as Paul. His name hasn't changed over yet in the narrative, but uh, Barnabas recruits Saul and goes to Tarsus, which is also in uh, what is now Syria, and brings him to come and work with him in the church. And together, they taught great numbers of people. And what we see here is that Barnabas and Saul are training the disciples in Antioch. We're not told exactly what it is that they uh, were teaching, but my guess is they were explaining and applying the gospel to the lives of these Christians in the church. They were explaining to them what it meant for Jesus to be Lord and how they should live now that Jesus was Lord of their lives. That's the pattern we find in most of the New Testament letters. Explanation of the gospel and that Jesus is Lord and then the implications of the gospel and what it means to live with Jesus as Lord. So here the uh, the church is being uh, taught. And of course that's the uh, the, the great work uh, of the gospel. It's not just about getting people to be converts, but it's about turning people into disciples. Isn't that uh, what the Lord Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission at the end of the uh, sort of, uh, Gospel of Matthew? You're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So conversion is only the beginning of a process of discipleship and of being conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. To be a disciple is to be a follower, to be a learner. So gospel ministry is not just about evangelism and conversion, it's about transforming those who have come to Christ to be more and more faithful disciples who are like him. And the result, I think, is that the church in Antioch therefore gave a gospel vision as a whole. This is a church that started with individuals who had a gospel vision, who'd been scattered and came and told the gospel to people, but through the teaching of the uh, apostles through the making of disciples the church as a whole came to have a gospel vision not just some individuals within the church so it's a crucial part of being a church that has a gospel vision to be a church that has a vision for training disciples that wants to bring the gospel to bear on every area of life so we live out the fact that Jesus is Lord We need to apply the gospel to our marriages. We need to apply the gospel to our work life. We need to apply the gospel to our role in the world as citizens. We need to apply the gospel to how we raise and bring up our children. And that's absolutely vital. So this church had a vision for training disciples. 
Thirdly, it had a vision for uh, sharing or, or supporting the wider church family. It had a vision for supporting the wider church family. That's uh, really verses 27 to 30. The focus shifts now from uh, the uh, work amongst the disciples in Antioch, as it were, in the local church, to the concern for the wider church, the uh, family of the people of God as a whole. Because, you see, the gospel is not, in the end, a message just about personal individual salvation. It is that, but it's more than that. See, Jesus is the Lord who is gathering a new people for himself. Jesus is creating a new nation under his rule. That's uh, why the disciples came to be called Christians. It's their new identity. So the church is more than just the local gathering of believers. The church, from Jesus' perspective, is the worldwide body of those who belong to him and recognise him as Lord. And that body is a new family of brothers and sisters uh, in him. And so here we see the church in Antioch being generous in giving to their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, There's a prophet who comes to the uh, church in Antioch, a man called Agabus, and he predicts by the Spirit that there's going to be a severe famine through the Roman world. It's going to be tough for everybody. But these Christians in uh, Antioch realise that it's going to be toughest for the believers in uh, Jerusalem and Judea. They were on the uh, edge of the empire. They were in some ways seen by the Romans as being slightly troublesome because of their sort of that religion. So they were the ones who would probably suffer the most. And so the result is that hearing of this famine to come, the church in Antioch responds generously by giving financially to the Christians in Judea. And you see, um, that is an expression of their gospel unity. That is an expression of their concern for these other believers who are family. Do you notice uh, uh, that that in verse uh, 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers. That's how they saw them. They saw them as extended family and as having a responsibility, therefore, to support them and help them. And uh, that is really striking because I think these Christians in uh, Jerusalem and Judea, they, they didn't know them personally. They actually weren't like them. Many of those people in Jerusalem and Judea, they came from a, a Jewish background. They would have practiced the Jewish law. Many of the Christians in uh, a kind of Antioch were from a Gentile background. So even though they weren't known to them, even though they were very different culturally and in their practice to them, they gave to them. Because they were brothers in the same family. See, the gospel creates a worldwide community of brothers and sisters. And if we have a vision for the gospel, then we must have a vision for the wider church family. They go hand in hand. And uh, that's vital for us, I think, um, in our own country. We can easily lose the uh, need to work with and support other churches uh, in our own country. So um, uh, we don't even practice at the level of uh, the kind of the churches that are like us and that are people who are like us. 
as I say, one of the goals of the FIEC is to try to generate and encourage that real partnership and working together between uh, sort of churches. But it's about a bigger worldwide view. Our Christian brothers and sisters around the world experience poverty and persecution. And we have a responsibility, the gospel demands that we have a responsibility to support them, to share with them. So a church that has a gospel vision will have a vision for supporting the wider church family. And lastly, we see that this church in Antioch had a vision for sending out gospel workers. It had a vision for sending out gospel workers. That takes us to uh, chapter 13 and uh, verse uh, 15. We see that the, uh, the church at Antioch became the base for mission to uh, the Gentiles uh, throughout the Roman Empire. The uh, church became the uh, launching off point for Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. The church was willing to send them out to do the work of of preaching the gospel and planting uh, new churches. Uh, Again, God uh, spoke to the church while they were praying um, and fasting and uh, uh, commanded the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas for this work and the church was willing uh, to do so. I think here we just need to reflect on the cost to the church of sending out these workers uh, from uh, the uh, church. After all, uh, Paul and Barnabas were their two big names. The the status of the church may well have been bound up with Paul and Barnabas ministering there. And here they were willing to send out their top (coughs) leaders to do this work of spreading uh, the gospel. No doubt it cost of their status, cost of their reputation. They wouldn't have an apostle present with them anymore in the life of the church. But they, were, they had a bigger vision for the gospel to go out beyond uh, themselves. There were um, other leaders in the church who would be able to take on the work, so it wasn't as if the church was being left without leadership. Maybe uh, some of these other guys, these teachers and these prophets that we read about there, they they may well have been the people that were being trained up in the church through the work that uh, Paul and Barnabas were doing of teaching. But because it was willing to send out gospel workers, this church was able to have an impact way beyond itself. And again, if uh, we have a vision uh, for the gospel then our churches will want to be raising up and sending out people to go into gospel ministry. The challenge is only going to be met if people go out to preach the gospel, to plant new churches, to go to new communities. And we need to be churches that are raising up and sending out gospel uh, workers. So here is a church with a gospel uh, vision. Here is a church that had a vision for reaching the lost. It told people about the gospel. A vision for training disciples. It uh, equipped and taught uh, people who were in the congregation. A vision uh, for supporting the wider church family. It was willing to give generously to other Christians and other churches. And a vision for sending out gospel workers. I think all of that, we have to remember, was incredibly costly. 
For the church at Antioch, this involved risk and sacrifice. And I think for many of us who are by nature and culture conservative evangelicals, we find risk and sacrifice quite difficult. We tend to prefer caution and comfort rather than risk and sacrifice. But that is what a gospel vision requires. It requires us fundamentally not to be selfish, but to be willing to give and serve something bigger than ourselves. Well, how does a church gain that kind of gospel vision? How does it maintain that kind of gospel vision? I think the passage suggests two things that are crucial if we're to have the kind of gospel vision that the church at Antioch had, if we're to be those who are willing to risk and sacrifice. Firstly, we need to hear and obey the word of God. We need to hear and obey the word of God. You see, ultimately, the gospel vision is God's vision. It's not our vision. It's not a vision that we've made up for the church. It's actually God's vision for his church and his people. So we need to listen to him and to obey him. Those who started this church in Antioch were obedient to the word of God. Do you remember Jesus' commands at the beginning of Acts chapter 1? You will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria and to the end of the earth. They were obeying what Jesus had commanded. In crossing the gospel boundaries they were being obedient to the vision that God had given Peter. Remember how God sent Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family? (coughs) They were being obedient to what God had revealed. When uh, this church was uh, training disciples, it was the word of God that was being taught to them. It was the uh, word of God taught and applied that created this church with a gospel vision. The church responded to the word of God When it gave to the brothers in Judea, it was through the word that came through Agabus. And it was in response to the word of God, obedience to the command set apart, that uh, led the church to send off Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. So what is it that creates a church that has a gospel vision? Well, in the end, it's a church that hears and obeys the word of God. But the other element is we need leaders who are teaching and modelling a gospel vision. It needs the word of God and it needs leaders who are teaching and modelling that gospel vision. Do you notice here the emphasis on the leaders in the church at Antioch? The emphasis on the role of Barnabas. The emphasis on the role of Saul. The emphasis then on the group of teachers and prophets who are ministering within the church. It's these leaders who taught and trained. It's these leaders who modelled a gospel vision. It's uh, leaders who, in uh, Paul and Barnabas, were willing to go for the sake of gospel work. If we want to have a gospel vision, we need leaders who are teaching and modelling that gospel vision. So that's what we need. If we want to be the kind of church that has a gospel vision like the church at Antioch, that will risk and sacrifice. We need to hear and obey the word of God. And we need leaders who teach and model that gospel vision. 
one of the uh, encouragements to me working with the FIC has been to travel around the country and meet churches which have that sort of gospel vision. To come across churches of all different sizes, large, medium, small, where they are telling people the good news about the Lord Jesus. Where they are seeing, whether in small numbers or larger numbers, people coming to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Where they are training and teaching people what it means for Jesus to be Lord and how to live with him as Lord. Where they are raising up uh, gospel workers and are sending out men and women to serve the gospel. We need many more churches that have that kind of gospel vision if we're going to make an impact on a nation that has become thoroughly secular, has turned away from God, and that desperately needs to be re-evangelised. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you so much for this church at Antioch. We want to thank you for the gospel vision that you gave them. Thank you for the way that they told people the good news about the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that they trained and equipped people to be disciples. Thank you so much for the way they were willing to give generously to support uh, others within the church family. And thank you for the way that they raised up uh, and set apart workers for the gospel. Father, we thank you for the challenge of the example of this church at Antioch. I pray that the church here at Magdalen Road and churches throughout the FIEC and churches throughout this country would recapture a gospel vision. Father, we just ask and pray that we would be those who would hear and obey your word and pray that you would raise up leaders who can teach and model that gospel vision to us. We ask and pray that your hand would be with us. Lord, we know that nothing that we do uh, will produce uh, results unless you are with us, so we ask for your uh, grace to be present with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.